1: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the edition of the Georgine Rice Show. A bit under the weather yesterday, so was uh, away from the mic, but glad to be back. James Blind is engineering and producing today's program, and we're glad to have you with us. Today we're going to talk with John Zmirak. He is the co-author of the Politically Incorrect Guide to Immigration. We'll find out what we think we know that may not be entirely accurate when uh, Mr. Zmirak joins us later this hour. First, taking a look at some of the developing news from the last couple of days, the president and his attorney, Jay 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 Seculo excuse me, clarified their previous statements about the controversial June 2016 meeting at the Trump Tower between Donald Trump Jr., campaign officials and Russian lawyer. Well, more on that in a moment. At least 91 people are now dead and hundreds uh, injured after a powerful earthquake rocked Indonesia's Lombok Island near Bali, and at least 63 people reportedly were shot, 10 fatally during the weekend in Chicago. Rahm Emanuel's job is hanging by a thread. Well, a suspicious black SUV and uh, hundreds of, uh, of uh, leads are part of the investigation trying to determine uh, where Molly Tibbetts may be. She was staying on the night. Uh, she was vanished in the home that's uh, occupied by her boyfriend, who was away at the time. A neighbor revealed that this black SUV was seen circling the Iowa neighborhood um, where she was staying. Um, will continue to follow that story as it develops. Well, President Trump's attorney, Jay Sekulow, blamed bad information for erroneously denying that the president had a role in drafting his campaign's response to a key 2016 meeting in June with a uh, Russian lawyer at Trump Tower. I had bad information at that time and made a mistake in my statement, Sekulow said on Sunday on ABC This Week. In a situation like this, over time, facts develop. That's what investigations do. Well, Sekulow's comments came shortly after the president tweeted another acknowledgement that the meeting. Was to get information on an opponent, opponent rather, which he characterized as totally legal and done all the time in politics, and it went nowhere. Trump last year said on Twitter that the most po- that most politicians would have gone to a meeting like the one John Ju- Don Jr. attended in order to get information on an opponent. That's politics. Donald uh, Trump Jr., his brother-in-law Jared Kushner, and then campaign chairman Paul Manafort were known to have attended the meeting with Kremlin-linked attorney Natalia. Last name. We'll just leave it up at up to in the air in an initial uh, July 2017 statement dictated by President Trump and issued by Trump Jr. Immediately after the meeting came to light, read in part, we primarily discussed a program about the adoption of Russian children that was active and popular with American families years ago. The statement made no mention of Trump officials seeking damaging information on Hillary Clinton. And a powerful earthquake near the popular tourist Mecca of Bali killed 91 and wounded hundreds more on Sunday, damaging thousands of homes and other buildings as people were seen running into the streets screaming. It happened just one week after another quake in the same region killed more than a dozen people. A spokesman for the country's disaster agency said uh, yesterday the number of fatalities could rise further since rescue crew crews still have not reached some areas that suffered damage. And a bloody weekend in Chicago saw at least sixty three reportedly people shot ten fatally since Friday, officials said, in a city that earlier had touted its decreased crime and violence numbers. Forty two people reportedly were wounded. Four fatally in those shootings on Sunday alone. Some of the people shot were teenagers, according to the report. Officials said 25 people were shot within two and a half hours on Sunday. Chicago Police Chief Patrol Fred Fred Waller at a news conference on Sunday afternoon said, we know that some of these incidents were targeted and are related to gang conflicts in those areas. The shooting spree began around 11 a.m. on Saturday when a 38-year-old man was shot in the Chicago Lawn neighborhood, according to the Tribune. And on Monday, on that day in 1945, during World War II, the U.S. B-29 Super Fortress Enola Gay dropped an atomic bomb code, a codenamed Little Boy, on Hiroshima, Japan, resulting in an estimated 140,000 deaths. And on that day, Monday... 1965, President Lyndon Baines Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act. And in 2009, on that day, Monday, Sonia Sotomayor was confirmed as the first Hispanic Supreme Court justice by a Senate vote of 68 to 31. Also in developing stories today, several states held primaries or are held holding them now. Primary votes, uh, but all eyes will be on Ohio's pivotal congressional special election, which could provide a preview of the November midterms. And Rick Gates, Paul Manafort's ex-business partner, testified that he and his former Trump campaign manager friend, co-partner, conspired to commit fraud and admitted embezzling from Manafort. Well, under an executive order by President Trump, the first set of U.S. sanctions against Iran eased under the Obama nuclear deal went back into effect early today. And in an interview, prominent conservatives uh, Charlie Kirk and Candace Owens spoke out about being harassed by alleged Uh, Antifa associates while trying to eat breakfast on Monday. And twin wildfires blazing in Northern California have become the largest in that state's history. And Rosie O'Donnell and Broadway stars led a sing-along protest against the president outside the White House on Monday night. Well, Democrats hoping for a major upset victory in the pivotal Ohio special election today touted a new poll suggesting the House race is a virtual tie, while Republicans made an all-out final push to avert a potential embarrassing loss in a district that they controlled for decades, I believe 35 years to be precise. Several other states will hold their um, polls, uh, will head to the polls for key primary fights today, including Missouri, Michigan, Kansas, and Washington. But the tight race for Ohio's wealthy and highly educated 12th congressional district District, which has had a Republican representative for more than 35 years is seen as a particularly crucial indicator of how President Trump's progress in office could be faring with conservatives. The contest today in Ohio is not a primary, but a special election to determine who will take the House seat held by retired Representative Pat Tiberi. A poll conducted earlier this month by Emerson College Polling Society and released on Monday found that the upstart Democrat in the race, 31-year-old Danny O'Connor, is holding on to a one percentage point lead over two-term Republican State Senator Troy Balderson, 56, with 7% of very likely voters still undecided. President Trump, who won the wealthy and highly educated district by double digits in 2016, went all in uh, for Balderson with a last-minute rally on Saturday night. Now, just to put this into perspective, the uh, representative who is retiring has been the chairman of a committee, and it's uh, uncommon for a chairman of the committee whose term limited out to continue on to just serve as a member of a committee. And for many of the um, Republicans who have stepped aside uh, this term, he sooner than uh, than others. Uh, that's the reason they're term limited out of their chairmanship. Uh, this is a special election, and whoever wins it will only serve until November. Uh, the November election, this same pair will will face off to determine who will hold that seat. Uh, for a full term. So that gives you a bit of uh, perspective on that. Well, Rick Gates uh, today took to the stand in the federal fraud case against his former business partner, ex-Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort, testifying that he and Manafort conspired to commit bank and tax fraud and that uh, he embezzled hundreds of thousands of dollars from Manafort. Were you involved in criminal activity when you worked for Mr. Manafort? Federal prosecutor Greg Andrus asked Gates uh, after he took the stand. Yes, Gates replied. Did you commit crimes with Mr. Manafort? Andrus asked. Yes, Gates said. Well, Manafort faces charges of bank and tax fraud related to his work in Ukraine, has pled not guilty to the charges. Gates, considered a star witness against Manafort, struck a deal with prosecutors to cooperate in the case against his former business partner. He, in fact, they said they would not oppose um, uh, if the uh, the sentence were simply probation, whereas Manafort, against whom he is testifying, could face up to 60 years. The usually bearded gates appeared in court clean-shaven on Monday and today. The day ended with the judge in the case ripping into prosecutors, telling them to expedite their case. Um, He did very well when being questioned by prosecutors. Didn't fare quite as well under uh, questions from uh, Manafort's counsel, uh, which went to his credibility. Well Iran sanctions have been restored. This is the first step of strict economic sanctions against Iran. It took effect midnight. Um, on Tuesday, target uh, transactions rather than involve U.S. dollars, as well as the country's automotive sector, the purchase of commercial planes and metals, including gold. President Trump on Monday signed an executive order to restore some of the sanctions that were lifted under the 2015 nuclear deal during the Obama administration. Iranian President Hassan Rouhani responded on Monday. If someone has a knife in their hand and seeks to talk, you should first put the knife in his pocket. Well, two rising conservative star activists who were harassed on Monday while trying to eat breakfast have a message to their foes or for their foes We're not going to back down. Turning Point USA founder Charlie Kirk and communications director Candace Owens were accosted outside a Philadelphia restaurant by a group of profanity hurling protesters allegedly aligned with Antifa. They were attempting to eat breakfast at the Green Egg Cafe near Center City when the group gathered outside and aggressively harassed them by the way they were, for the most part, masked in video footage. footage. Footage posted on Owen's Twitter page, the protesters can be seen shouting and blowing whistles in the conservative commentator's face while chanting... Expletives and referring to her as a white supremacist. Of course, she's an African-American woman. Uh, we're not going to play the victim card here. That's what the left does all the time. Kirk told uh, Fox News Sean Hannity on Hannity Monday night. But this was a warning here. This is Maxine Waters America, Owens added. This was an important moment to show America this is what we're fighting because not many Americans understand this is real. Well, Monday's incident in Philadelphia is the latest in a series of public attacks on conservative officials and commentators in recent months. As the divide over President Trump's policies continues to widen, conservatives have pinned the blame for much of the confrontation in part on Democratic Representative Maxine Waters, who urged supporters to swarm cabinet members at gas stations and anywhere else they're seen. And two wildfires blazing in California, known as the Mendocino Complex Fire, became the largest recorded in state history on Monday, crossing a grim milestone. The fire in uh, Calusa Lake in Mendocino counties has killed two people, burned 238,800 acres as of Monday. It has destroyed at least 143 structures, including 75 homes, according to Cal Fire officials. More than 9,000 structures remain under threat. The Mendocino Complex fires, which in an area the size of Los Angeles, Los Angeles surpassed the Thomas Wildfire in Ventura and Santa Barbara counties, which has burned 281,893 acres last year. The Northern California, uh, California fires are burning a few miles apart and have uh, been ablaze since the 27th of July. And on this day in 1782, General George Washington created the Order of the Purple Heart, a decoration to recognize merit in enlisted men and non-commissioned officers. And on this day in 1998, terrorist bombs at U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania killed 224 people, including 12 Americans. And on this day in 2007, San Francisco giant slugger Barry Bonds hits home run number 756 to break Hank Aaron's storied record. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're back 25 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with John Zmirak. He is the co-author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Immigration, An America First Manifesto. We'll talk with him about that. Well, the fate of President Trump's proposed border wall returned uh, this morning to a California courtroom where it appears likely to survive another round of judicial scrutiny. In a 40-minute hearing that went deep into the legal morass of which courts could properly hear challenges to the controversial plan, Uh, Although it had become controversial because uh, Congress had actually passed the building of a wall before they opposed it. Anyway, there uh, seemed to be little appetite by the three appellate judges to rule that the administration's Department of Homeland Security has overstepped its authority. Earlier this year, a federal judge in San Diego, said the president and the DHS, Homeland Security, were within their powers to erect new border walls, prototypes, and replace several sections of existing wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. That ruling also cleared the way for the government to waive any environmental laws that could impede construction of the wall, which Trump wants uh, built to further secure the nation's southern border from uh, illegal immigration hailing from mexico and latin america well the state of california and several environmental groups joined together to challenge that decision asking the court to reverse course and the federal judge on friday ordered a total restart of the deferred action for childhood arrivals or daca program in a hit to the trump administration last year the administration announced its plan to phase out the program which provides a level of amnesty to certain illegal immigrants many of whom came to the United States as children. The order is not set to kick in right away, according to Politico, which notes that the government has until the 23rd of this month to file a motion to appeal that ruling by the U.S. District Judge John Bates. However, the judge denied a motion by the government to revise its earlier decision in April, which determined that the Department of Homeland Security decision to rescind DACA was unlawful, according to court documents. Following that decision, the court issued a 90-day stay acknowledging that the DHS could Possibly remedy the decision's inadequacy, at least in theory. That period of time is now over, the judge said. For the reasons explained below, the government's motion will be denied. The document read. Although the Nielsen memo purports to offer further explanation for DHS decisions to rescind DACA, it fails to elaborate elaborate meaningfully on the agency's primary rationale for its decision: the judgment that the policy was unlawful and unconstitutional. So, at least for now, until the uh, government's disposition. Uh, to appeal uh, is made clear. Now, there's a new report that shows that government gave in the DACA program, Protection thousands without doing much um, background checking. Historian Jacob Buckard uh, rather, once warned against being deceived by uh, terrible simplifiers. If he hadn't died in 1897, you might be tempted to think he was writing about defenders of the of previous administration's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, Um, It's it's uh, consistently characterized um, that all DACA recipients um, uh, are innocent, law abiding Phi Beta Kappa college graduates. They also treat anyone questioning DACA as a child hater. That's just one of the uh, myths surrounding the program. And Hans von Spakovsky, Christopher Baldacci have written a piece for The Daily Signal uh, regarding this new report that shows the government gave uh, DACA protections to thousands who should not have been given Uh, In view of the percentages, I'm I'm not sure what the numbers would be, but they didn't do uh, due diligence in determining who. Uh, should have been a recipient. When President Trump last uh, tried to rescind DACA, a program that the uh, Obama administration implemented without legal authority or the approval of Congress, uh, it was decried the that the move was an attack on peace loving immigrants. However, new research challenges that simplistic narrative. Recently, the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services did a comprehensive review of aliens who applied for benefits under DACA. Getting approved under the plan provided a period of deferred action, a promise that the the individual would not be deported, as well as access to certain government benefits like Social Security and Medicaid. Well, the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services found that approximately 8 percent of DACA has, beneficiaries rather, had previously been arrested, including for crimes such as assault, rape and murder, yet were still approved. Judicial Watch, I, I, this is a small percentage, we're talking about 8 percent, and yet it does tell you that they weren't very careful about uh, extending the protection. Judicial Watch warned back in 2013 that the uh, the DACA um, was very limited in its vetting procedures, woefully inadequate, and the data had proven it right. For those who think that during the Obama administration, the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services was actually checking the backgrounds of all DACA applicants, nothing could be further from the truth. It implemented a lean and light system in which only a few randomly seg- selected DACA applicants uh, were ever actually investigated, and only rarely uh, was any of the information on the application itself verified. This was... Uh, This new data from the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services contradicts claims that DACA uh, has uh, has not been a shield for criminal aliens. The director, Francis Cisna, lamented, the truth is that we let those with criminal arrests for sexually assaulting a minor, kidnapping, human trafficking, child pornography, and even murder be provided protection from uh, removal. Not only were some of the beneficiaries, the so-called Dreamers, criminals before they received the deferred action, but a number of them committed crimes after they were given a free pass. And of that group of uh, recipients, um, with the prior arrests, 13% of them, nearly 8,000, were arrested for another crime after they were in the United States. So one would at least hope that if the program is going to uh, to stand, that sufficient diligence would be taken to make sure that those are who are granted uh, that uh, tremendously generous um, uh, period of uh, protection uh, would honor that. Uh, that protection. 31 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with John Zmirak, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Immigration. Hey, we're back 36 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, America's immigration crisis is out of control. Unregulated immigration has led to an increase in crime, a loss of working class jobs, an inflated welfare state, an elevated amount of terror threats on our home uh, on our home territory. The clash of differing emotions, facts and opinions reveal that this issue is not simply a nationwide disagreement. It's an American crisis, so says my next guest and his uh, co-author. In The Politically Incorrect Guide to Immigration, John Zmirak and Al Parada, they debunk the most deceptive myths on this complex policy issue and reveal the huge implications that lie ahead for our nation's future. Zmirak and Parada set the record straight on the history of uh, American immigration. They uncover the principles with which the founders uh, uh, migrated to America, affirm the respect with which uh, migrants uh, should treat our country if they wish to live here and assert real solutions to the immigration crisis American faces. The Politically Incorrect Guide to Immigration equips readers with the real-life statistics and information. It's packed with targeted arguments to help convince even the staunchest advocates for open borders that America needs to build a wall, despite what the Supreme Court has recently Uh, recently, uh, not the Supreme Court, but a federal judge has recently said. Well, John Zmirak is an editor, college teacher, uh, screenwriter, and political columnist. He is the author of Wilhelm Ropke, Swiss localist, global economist, and the popular Bad Catholics Guide. He edited a number of popular guides to higher education and served as press secretary to Louisiana Governor Mike Foster. He holds a BA from Yale and a PhD from Louisiana State University. He joins us today to talk about the politically incorrect guide To immigration. Welcome. It's always a pleasure to have you with us.
2: Thank you. You gave such a great intro. I feel like I don't have to say very much, but I'm (laughs) happy to to talk to you. Um, Yeah, this book is really important because of the politics. The politics right now are that the Democratic Party has written off the American working class, they've even written off most of the minority community. They don't care what happens in Chicago, they don't care about the shootings in the ghetto, they don't care about Uh, the blue-collar wages being flat for the last 50 years adjusted for inflation, they've decided to bet on what they think is the new America, which they're bringing in across our border in the form of a million legal immigrants and maybe half a million illegal immigrants every year. They're counting on those people to be the Democratic majority that will turn one state blue after another, just the way California used to be Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon's political home. Now it's, you know... A Republican couldn't get elected dog catcher there. So that's their model for, for winning power in America. They're unhappy with the electorates. So they've decided to dissolve them and import a new American people.
1: What is, the, what is the main thing that the average American thinks they understand about immigration but may be mistaken, particularly in this climate?
2: Okay, great. I'll give you like four or five. Okay, Number one, most Americans think you have to show that you're legally present in the country to get a job. That's not the case. There is a a system called E-Verify, the federal government provides it, that lets you check if your employees are legal, if your applicants are legal to work here, but it's voluntary, voluntary. Imagine it's voluntary to show any form of ID proving you're legal to work in the United States. Most Americans think that legal immigrants are brought here because employers have expressed a desire for them to work here. That's not true. More than 60% of immigrants get in through nepotism. because It's called family reunification. It's a system Ted Kennedy set up in 1965 in order to bring more Irish into Boston. Basically, if you're somebody's uncle or cousin or brother or adult parent or adult child, you can use that to get into the country. So if we give an amnesty to a million DACA recipients and so-called dreamers, they can sponsor the parents who smuggled them into the country. Uh, Number three, most people think that when 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 foreigners overstay their visas that they're forced to leave the country. In fact, millions of people are here who simply came in on a tourist visa or a student visa, overstayed, and the government never checked. Many of the hijackers on 9/11 got into America on tourist visas, which expired. Nobody bothered to deport them from the country. If they had, they would have discovered the conspiracy. We wouldn't have had 9/11. We wouldn't be at war in Iraq today. Um, Most people also think that that, that the, the people coming to our country are refugees from persecution and violence. In fact, most of the people coming into our southern border from Central America are simply seeking higher wages or seeking welfare benefits that are higher than the wages for working in their country. Most people think that immigrants assimilate. In fact, they're not assimilating. Our schools aren't even encouraging it. California's official history standards teach that, it, that asking immigrants to assimilate, to learn English and adopt our culture and adhere our constitution, that is racist. It was racist for us to expect Italians and Irish and Germans in previous generations or Hispanics and Asians today to become Americans. That's now officially racist. According to the, the state of California, whose textbooks frequently get adopted by a dozen other states, so I would say those are those are some pretty solid uh, myths that people need need to see. Uh, none of these things are true. That people think that uh, we our economy needs immigrants. It only needs immigrants if we want to keep working classes' wait, wages frozen the way they've been frozen for fifty years.
1: Let's well, so- um, Let's talk about the wall. As I mentioned, a federal judge uh, just in the last day or so indicated that the president, um, that building the wall, uh, he may not have the authority to do so, despite the fact that Congress has in previous years passed legislation to do just that without funding it. Um, And one of the objections is that building the wall would be so incredibly expensive that it's implausible, as well as the terrain being impassable.
2: Well, that's not for a judge to decide, and I think the president should simply defy the judge. Let the judge enforce his order. He's clearly outside the Constitution. The president should just defy him. Presidents have defied judges in the past. Uh, For instance, Abraham Lincoln defied the Supreme Court when he suspended habeas corpus in order to stop Confederate activists from committing treason and sabotage all across the North.
1: Now, illegal immigration, um, we assume, is a, is a benefit to the United States. But one of the things that you write about is the cost of illegal immigration and the cost to American taxpayers. Tell us what that cost is and where that money goes.
2: Well, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but uh, Steve Camarota of the Center for Immigration Studies estimated that the cost of providing edu- free education and Medicaid And welfare to family members of illegal immigrants let's say they come here and they have kids and the kids are citizens they get welfare the cost of building a wall in five years or less we would cover the cost of building the entire wall by by the money saved on welfare benefits provided to family members of illegal immigrants and frankly illegal immigrants who show up at the emergency ward they have to be treated they have to be taken care of. Who pays for that? Americans pay for that. Employers who use illegal immigrants don't have to provide insurance or health benefits or safety. They don't worry about safety things because nobody's inspecting them. Uh, workman's comp, none of that. They just drop the people off at the emergency ward when they get injured, and the taxpayer – pays for it and that employer has a cost advantage against any honest employers who are using legal American workers. I once saw a documentary about a, a, a gardening company in Los Angeles It only wanted to use people who were legally present in the United States, most of them Hispanics but you know Hispanic citizens. That company went bankrupt because it could not compete with the sweatshop labor of companies using illegals.
1: You make the point in the book that competition from immigrants costs American workers four hundred and fifty billion dollars um, a year. I assume that's um, illegal immigration,
2: illegal immigration, and I think also just recent, you know, newly brought in low skill immigrants who are who bring down the wages of the native working class. And so, teenagers don't get entry level jobs. Uh, high school dropouts born in America whose parents might be veterans. They don't get jobs. Um, they, they can't afford to work for the for the very low wages that people are willing to accept who just got here from a third world country and are willing sometimes to live 12 and 13 of them to a house.
1: Now, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to take a look back at um, 19th century um, immigration, for example. Uh, and, and the response they had to the challenge of living in America. So we'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. Again, we're talking this afternoon with John Merrick. The book is The Politically Incorrect Guide to Immigration. We'll be back. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And my guest this afternoon is John Zmerak. He, along with his co-author, Al Parada, are the authors of uh, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Immigration. Now, before we move forward, let's talk about the moral problem as uh, as believers, as Christians. Many of us are concerned about what our our position ought to be with regard to immigration. Uh, That includes a, a, a Christian worldview. How do you address that concern for those who are confused about whether or not we ought to welcome anyone in under any circumstance, regardless of the cost, uh, or that it's appropriate for a nation to maintain borders and to invite people to come in legally?
2: I would would say I would not let my Christian faith influence laws I want to impose on the whole country, including non-Christians. If Christians want to be compassionate, we can help in any number of ways. We can send aid to poor countries. We can sponsor legal immigrants and ta- help help them learn English and get a job. We can, we can offer English classes. Churches used to have big Americanization programs where they would teach citizenship and language and, and civics and job skills to people who came here legally. But to say that because we, some, we as Christians, some of us read the Bible one particular way, we can bind our fellow citizens to use their tax money to support people coming into the country. I think that's just as wrong as saying that, you know, I'm a Catholic. Maybe we shouldn't allow people to sell meat on Fridays because it will lead people to eat it and they're not supposed to if they're Catholic. Or forcing people to go to church on Sunday. I mean, we're supposed to, to seek justice. Justice that is equal for everyone regardless of their religion. Uh, We're not in a country that's officially Christian that adopts officially Christian politics. That's a very divisive and dangerous thing. It sets the churches at each other's throats trying to determine which one will be the official Christian church. Um, so I would say Christian compassion is something you do on your own or you do together in your church. The government's job is to enforce justice and to protect the rights of our citizens and the national interests of our citizens. And if you want to do something compassionate, go on a mission trip. Uh, set, give money to Food for the Poor. Maybe invest in a, in, a, in a company that creates jobs in these countries so that the people don't have to leave. There are many things you could do besides dumping it on the taxpayer and pretending that Jesus told you to.
1: Let's talk about the history of immigration in America and then why it's important that we have a national border. Is this a, is this contrary to the sentiment of Ellis Island? Well,
2: El, the, first of all, the Statue of Liberty was built to commemorate freedom as an example to other countries. And then some years later, Emma Lazarus had written this pretty poem about immigration and they put the plaque up at the base of the statue. Um, But remember, at that time, when those people arrived how different a country was America. My grandfather got here in 1916, didn't speak a word of English, spoke only Croatian. He got a job shoveling coal on a tugboat, okay? America needed millions of low-skill immigrants to do the grunt jobs of manufacturing, to, to create farms in empty country like South Dakota and Nebraska, which we had taken from the Indians. We had all these empty, empty farmland, all these burgeoning factories. We, have, we don't need more farmers. We've outsourced most low-skilled labor to third-world countries. There aren't jobs for these people. And when they arrived, when my grandfather arrived, there was no welfare system. So if he didn't find a job, he would have had to go home. One out of three immigrants who came to the U.S. from Italy, one out of three went back to Italy because they couldn't find a job, they didn't like it, there was no social welfare glue trap to stick them here. But people who come from poor countries today, they have a whole social safety net, a whole package of benefits that they're eligible for. It's like a glue trap. They're never going to go back home to their home country where working a 40 or 50 or 60-hour week doesn't pay as well as getting welfare and food stamps in the United States.
1: It was Ronald Reagan in 1986 under his administration that the amnesty for the illegal population at that time, uh, that which was about 3.2 million, um, was given amnesty. That's burgeoned to 11 million, possibly more. Your thoughts on the Reagan era and amnesty at that time and what we're talking about uh, potentially doing here at this time?
2: Well, it was just like what Paul Ryan and the Rhino Republicans are offering today. Uh, give us amnesty now, and we'll give, you inf- we'll give you enforcement later. I'm reminded of the Popeye character, Wimpy. It's, I will gladly pay you Tuesday if you give me a burger today. Um, the, the enforcement never happens. In, in the case of the Reagan administration, the, the National Association of Manufacturers and the National Restaurant Association uh, got to him and said, you can't run around deporting our illegal workers. It'll hurt profits. We won't contribute to the Republicans. It'll hurt the economy, and, uh, and to his discredit, Ronald Reagan caved. So he, he gave up the enforcement part of the bill. The amnesty would never have passed without the promise of enforcement. That's what happens every time they they buy off they buy off conservatives with promises about enforcement that never, never are fulfilled, they get their amnesty, and what that amnesty is, it's an invitation to every single dissatisfied person in the whole of Latin America to get to America, whatever means they can, bring along a child, and then they can't just detain you for very long. Do whatever you need to. Go through the desert. Pay those human traffickers $5,000 a head, but get to America because you will never have to leave. The Democrats will make sure of it. And that, frankly, is very dangerous. There are thousands of people every year who die in the desert sneaking into the country. 80% of women and girls who come into America illegally from Central America, 80% of them are raped on the journey. 80 percent, that's the Huffington Post, gave us that statistic. And if we have due amnesties, we are encouraging the next wave of rape victims, the next wave of people to die in the desert, the next wave of people to be exploited in illegal and and dangerous working conditions uh, at sweatshop factories all around America.
1: Let's talk about some of the other solutions that have been uh, brought forward the gang of eight we might recall their role in all of this, the DACA and the dreamers we talked a little bit about that. Barbara Jordan you write about in the u s Commission on immigration reform.
2: Barbara Jordan had a great plan and it, was, it honored American workers by trying to lower the number of unskilled workers we bring in, secure the border, get rid of idiotic stuff like the visa lottery that gives away American citizenship like a bingo prize, um, get rid of family reunification whereby you can bring in your cousin and then he can become a citizen too and an endless chain of more and more people from extended families in poor countries with virtually no skills coming to compete with the most vulnerable American workers. Um, We have a plan, a a 15-point plan in the book called Mission America. It starts with, first, build a wall. We have to stop people dying in the desert, getting raped along the border. We have to stop Mexican cartels from controlling our southern border. Secondly, e-verify. Every employer in America should have to check the legal status of anyone he hires, period. Or he should go to jail. The employer, not the immigrant. Uh, Then we have to... Track and deport people over, who overstay their visas. That's most illegal immigrants in America came in on visas and overstayed. We need to cut legal immigration uh, maybe by 50% and, and change its justification to mostly based on job skills, academic degrees, you know, qualifications for jobs that actually exist in America, that didn't exist in America when the Statue of Liberty were built, was built but don't exist anymore. Um, we need an immigration plan oriented towards the first-world country that America has become, rather than the third-world country the Democrats are trying to make it into.
1: How likely is it that? And, and there's much more in the book that you write about on that subject. But how likely is it in our current political climate that any of this is possible? We know the president is championing some of these ideas. Uh, the Democrats, on the other hand, um, are, are loath to accept virtually any limits. Um, how likely is it that we can succeed? at, uh, as you put it, Mission uh, America?
2: I think it all depends on the midterm elections on November 6th. People need to realize we're doing essentially a do-over of the Trump election. If they want Trump to continue to be an effective president, they need to get out and vote for their local Republican so that the Democrats don't take the House. Because if they take the House, they will eat up the next two years of Trump's term on frivolous impeachment proceedings. No matter what Mueller gives them, it could be a ham sandwich and a greasy paper bag. They're going to impeach Trump, and he's going to have to fight just to stay in office. He'll get nothing accomplished. We won't secure the border. We won't build up our military, we might not even be able to disarm North Korea. All of this hinges on the upcoming congressional elections. So uh, really, it's up to America. If Americans want a do-nothing, lame-duck president for the next few years and crazy socialists like Maxine Waters and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez turning America into into the likes of Venezuela or Cuba, well, then stay home or vote Democrat. But if we get a Republican House, uh after the election. I think Trump will be empowered. We'll probably have a new speaker, maybe Jim Jordan, who's actually a conservative. I, I think you're gonna see some action. But I know that immigration is the number one issue among voters. It's the reason Trump got the nomination. It's the reason he won the presidency. He needs to take as much action as he can with his executive power, but he needs a friendly house that's not going to be engaged in the frankly unpatriotic business of a frivolous impeachment trial.
1: Well, we will see what happens in the near term. John Zmirek, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Appreciate it very time. much. Once again, the book is titled The Politically Incorrect Guide to Immigration. We've got news and traffic coming up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
2: Uh.
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Eight minutes after five o'clock is our time. Hey, I want to let you know the men's roundup. Yeah, they're rounding up right now. Okay, they're taking registration. Uh, This is the Christian Men's Camping Retreat and Conference September the 7th through the 9th at Camp Tadmore in Lebanon, Oregon. Um, uh, Matt Michel- Michelatos is the speaker. He's an author and a missionary. Musical guests include Consumed by Fire and Paul Wright, as well as Rapture Ruckus. James, do you know Rapture Ruckus? Yes. Anyway, you can enter online today to win two free tickets at kpdq.com. We'd like to encourage you to do um, just that. And mark your calendars. Michael Jr., uh, the, more the the more uh, the More Than Funny Tour. I probably should have stayed home another day. I'm not feeling great. Anyway, the More Than Than Funny Tour is coming to Portland on Saturday, September 15th at East Hill Church in Gresham. Tickets are on sale now. General admission is $20 in advance, $25 at the door, and VIP Gold Circle tickets can also be purchased. Go to kpdq.com or use your KPDQ mobile app for more details. Michael Jr. coming to Portland once again in September. Well, the U.S. posted another solid spurt of hiring in July, showing that companies are still able to find enough workers to meet the growing needs of a rapidly expanding U.S. economy. Some 150,000 new jobs were created last month, despite widespread complaints among businesses about a shortage of skilled labor. The Labor Department said this was on Friday. The increase in hiring fell below 195,000 market watch forecast, but job gains in May and in June were stronger. Than previously reported the smaller gain in employment was also a result of governments cutting jobs and education during the summer break and the closure of Toys R Us. Otherwise, hiring may have topped 200,000. So that's uh, that's pretty good news. Well, the legal pressures facing Michael Cohen, uh, they're growing a wide ranging investigation of his personal business affairs and his work on behalf of the former client, his former client, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, Before he was President Trump and even after, in previously unreported developments, federal prosecutors in New York are examining whether Mr. Cohen committed tax fraud. Um, According to those familiar with the case, federal authorities are assessing whether Mr. Cohen, his income from his uh, taxi medallion business was underreported in federal tax returns. Uh, that income included hundreds of thousands of dollars received in cash and other payments over the last five years. Prosecutors also are looking at, into uh, whether any bank employees improperly allowed Mr. Cohen to obtain loans for which he didn't provide adequate documentation. Now, um, in particular, federal investigators are looking closely at his relationship with Sterling National Bank, which provided financing for his tax medallion business, including whether Mr. Cohen inflated the value of any of his assets as collateral for loans, according to... uh, Those familiar with the matter, convictions for federal tax and bank fraud can carry potentially significant prison sentences, which could put additional pressure on Mr. Cohen to cooperate with prosecutors if he's charged with those crimes, according to former federal prosecutors. Uh, As part of the inquiry into Mr. Cohen's relationship with banks, federal authorities have been investigating whether he made misrepresentations or false statements on loan applications. Um, Meantime, federal prosecutors subpoenaed Mr. Cohen's former accountant, Jeffrey Getzel. Who was responsible for preparing many of his financial statements submitted to banks? Um, Mr. Getzel also served as an accountant for um, uh, Ev, Ev, let's see, Evgeny, uh, a Gene Friedman, a tax uh, taxi medallion manager who worked with Mr. Cohen, according to. Uh, public court records. He's cooperating with federal prosecutors in the investigation. Uh, Mr. Cohen's lawyer declined to comment out of respect for the ongoing investigation. Mr. Cohen had previously denied any wrongdoing, but that's going to be difficult to maintain given uh, this new charge. A lawyer for Mr. Friedman, uh, Patrick Egan, said Mr. Friedman's uh, interest. I cannot make any public statement regarding any ongoing criminal investigation. So that's that. Well, a spokesman for the Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office declined to comment. The Federal Bureau of of Investigation and the Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office have been investigating Mr. Cohen for bank fraud, campaign finance violations, and other possible crimes related to his personal business interests and his effort to conceal negative information about the president, including claims by two women who have said that they had encounters with Mr. Trump, according to the Wall Street Journal. Well, Mr. Trump has denied... um, uh, relationships with either of the, uh, the women. Uh, Mr. Cohen began to work with Mr. Trump more than a decade ago and once described himself as the president's fixer. In addition to his work for uh, then-civilian, now-President Trump, Mr. Cohen pursued his own business interests, including ventures in real estate, personal loans, and investments in taxi medallions, for which he is now being scrutinized. As of April of this year, Mr. Cohen owned 22 medallions in Chicago, and either he or his wife controlled 32 in New York City, some of which were also owned at least partly by family members and others. As recently as twenty fourteen, taxi medallions were considered a rock solid investment. They issued um The medallions issued by a city agency required for running a taxi are bought and sold on the secondary market. Some licensed for taxi medallions in New York sold for an average $1.25 million per medallion in 2013 and 2014. But in recent years, their value has plummeted with competition from ride-sharing services like Uber and Lyft. And in a filing for the federal bankruptcy case in 2017, Mr. Friedman said the value of each medallion had dropped to $200,000 to $225,000 respectively. Well, even as Mr. Cohen is being investigated for possibly underreporting his income to evade federal taxes, prosecutors are also looking into whether he overstated his uh, income in loan applications and refinancing efforts, according to people familiar with that matter. Well, Sterling, a midside Rockland uh, County New York bank with about $30 billion in assets as of uh, March of this year, backed the companies through uh, which Mr. Cohen owns the New York medallions, according to court filings. So. In addition to um, disclosing information that was subject to um, client uh, attorney privilege, uh, he's also in trouble for other issues as well. Well, after a bloody Chicago weekend that left a dozen dead and another 62 wounded, Mayor Rahm Emanuel is facing a mounting political crisis with his rivals emboldened as they aim to unseat him. In the looming mayoral election, seven of his 10 challengers slammed the uh, prominent Democrat for the city's soaring crime and blamed him for everything from the understaffed police force to lack of investment in Chicago's economically downtrodden neighborhoods. Rahm Emanuel has tried to fend off the attacks while claiming a, a, a calming rather an alarmed electorate. But the latest violence has only fueled the calls for his uh, Uh, Ouster and political change in the February election. What happened over the weekend is absolutely horrific and unacceptable. Former Chicago Public Schools CEO and mayoral candidate Paul Vallis, according to the Chicago uh, Tribune, he said, unfortunately, we've had too many of them. Uh, there is no solution for providing the police resources we need to close this gap. Movalis well, blamed Emmanuel for permitting the police department's detective division to be gutted through attrition and accused him of shifting officers to various sections of the city for political reasons. And that will certainly be a race to watch in February um, in the city of uh, Chicago. We're going to take a break. 15 minutes after five o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Hey, we are back 21 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, today is primary day in states all across the country, including our neighbor to the north, Washington. Tonight will be a uh, pretty much of a waiting game on the results of the big races in Kansas, Michigan, Missouri, Washington State, and the special election in Ohio's 12th district with these races in mind. Uh, some of the things to look for in Ohio 538, just like in Georgia's 6th district and Pennsylvania's 18th, Democrats in Ohio's 12th district. Uh, picked as their nominee a fresh-faced 30-something Franklin County recorder, Danny O'Connor. And just like in Georgia and Pennsylvania, Republicans chose a 50-something veteran of state politics, State Senator Troy Balderson. Like his Democratic um, uh, antecedents, O'Connor had out uh, out-raised his opponent in campaign cash, deploying That advantage early on TV ads burnishing his uh, centrist bona fides. He tied himself with Republican Governor John Kasich and explicitly promised not to vote for Nancy Pelosi for Speaker, although he may have given back some of that yardage. Uh, when he said on MSNBC that he would support whoever the Democratic Party puts forward instead of allowing Republicans to control the House. Meanwhile, in keeping with special election tradition, some Republicans have anonymously complained about their candidate, although others have publicly embraced him. Uh, Kasich, albeit after some initial uh, reticence, endorsed Balderson and cut an ad for him, and President Trump flew in Saturday for a rally. Now, they're replacing a... um, uh, a member of Congress who served for a number of years and sat on the uh, as the chair of the committee. He has been term limited out to be the chairman. And it's not uncommon for members of of Congress to decide I don't want to just become a member of the committee after having chaired it. So he has stepped away. This is a special election. And whoever wins will fill that seat until the election in November. So this is going to be very short lived. And this very same pair will face reelection contest Uh, come November. So it's a rather interesting, unusual uh, face up. But this is a seat, Ohio's 12th district that has been held by Republicans for more than 35 years. And it's a very close race at this point. Well, in Kansas, there's a gubernatorial race. Uh, According to Hayes Daily News, President Donald Trump injected his influence into the Kansas governor's race on Monday. He uh, endorsed Chris Kobach in his hotly contested primary challenge a day before the election. Polling shows the secretary of state uh, locked in a virtual tie with Governor Jeff Collier uh, as they uh, scramble to get undecided Republican voters in the final hours of the campaign. So this is going to be an interesting uh, face-off. Bob Beatty, a political science professor of Washburn University, said the endorsement won't change people's minds about the candidates in the race where former State Senator Jim Barnett and Insurance Commissioner Ken Sizer are acting as potential spoilers in that race. In the House, uh, two GOP Uh, Held House seats in Kansas could also be competitive in November uh, as Democrats try to flip the 23 GOP seats needed to take the House majority. In the third district, multiple Democratic candidates are challenging Republican Representative Kevin Yoder. That race is among the few primaries uh, that will test whether Midwestern Democrats prefer candidates who champion progressive policies or those considered more centrist and better able to compete in the general election for a swing seat. Um, In Kansas' 2nd District, Democrat Paul Davis runs unopposed as he tries to flip a red seat vacated by GOP Representative Lynn Jenkins' retirement in a crowded Republican field. The leading candidate includes uh, Senators Steve Fitzgerald and Karen Tyson. In Michigan, uh, incumbent Democratic Senator Debbie Stabnow is uh, running for re-election. She's going to run in the general election against former West Point graduate and Iraq veteran John James uh, or businessman Sandy Penzler. Uh, in the gubernatorial race, there are three Democratic candidates vying for their party's approval. Gretchen Whitmer, Abdul Al-Sayed, and Shri Thanaderi. Uh, so some uh, interesting races there. Also in Missouri, in Washington, uh, voters there are deciding which you, our Washington listeners, know which candidate advanced to the uh, will advance to the November ballot in ten congressional races, a U.S. Senate seat, dozens of legislative contests in the state's primary election. As uh, national Democrats eye making gains in the House. Uh, The match that's getting the most attention on Tuesday is the uh, open eighth congressional district race to replace Republican Representative Dave uh, Reichert, who's retiring after more than a decade. Among the dozen candidates on the ballot, Republican Dino Rossi, a former state senator who had uh, unsuccessful runs for governor in U.S. Senate, is expected to advance along with uh, one of three Democrats, a pediatrician, Kim Schreier, attorney Jason Rittreiser and a former federal Public health official Shannon Hader, the other nine House seats are also contested in the primary with the incumbent seeking reelection in the fifth congressional district. Incumbent Kathy Morris Rogers is expected to advance to November, along with the Democrat Lisa Brown, although that's not determined until Washington voters actually cast their ballots. But this is what they're um, what they're looking at. So uh, races to watch in Washington in Missouri, Michigan, Kansas and Ohio being the big one, uh, at least for those who are trying to forecast what the November election might, the midterm election might look like. So um, we'll see what, um, what actually happens. And um, the, the rise of democratic socialism has been one of the key developments in the democratic party in recent years. It doesn't reflect the whole of the party, but it is gaining in uh, acceptance and embrace first with the popularity of Senator uh, Bernie Sanders. And more recently, um, Alexandria, um, Ocasio-Cortez's primary win over party mainstay representative Joe Crowley in New York. That was an upset that few expected. One of the ways the movement is, uh, is presented is with the claim that uh, this is not your grandfather's socialism or the socialism of the former Soviet Union, Venezuela or other failed states. It's more Scandinavian health care than overthrowing the bourgeois. Um, But uh, now a Democratic Socialist writer is leveling uh, with voters, telling them that actually, yes, they do want to topple capitalism. I'm a staff writer, he writes, uh, at a socialist magazine, uh, Jacobin and a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. And here's the truth. In the long run, Democratic Socialists want to end capitalism. In an article for Vox, Megan Day, who's a writer for the Socialist magazine, uh, Jacobin and the Democratic Socialist says the goal is to pursue a reform agenda today in an effort to revive the politics focused on class hierarchy and inequality in the United States. The eventual goal is to transform the world to promote everyone's needs rather than to produce massive profits for a small handful of citizens, she says. Day goes on to reject the idea that democratic socialism is just a modern form of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal, as some have suggested, but we also want more than FDR did. Robust welfare state in an economy that's still organized around capitalists' profits. Uh, can migrate the worst inequalities for a while, but it is the best, at best, rather, a temporary truce between bosses and workers and one that the former will look uh, to scrap as soon as they can, she argues. Well, in the meantime, she argues that the goal of democratic socialism should be to go and fight the battles that will eventually rally people together uh, to fight what she calls the capitalist Goliaths currently in charge of our society. The article comes after a rough few days for democratic socialists. Um, Aros... uh, Sorry, I stumble on this name, but I just do. Ocasio Cortez was widely criticized for an interview with The Daily Show where she struggled to lay out exactly how she would fund um, her agenda. And a new study found that the uh, Medicare uh, for all plan pushed by Sanders and endorsed by a host of Democratic congressional and presidential hopefuls would increase government to health care spending by thirty two point six trillion dollars over the first 10 years. On Wednesday, former President uh, Barack Obama issued a list of midterm endorsements, a list which notably did not include um, Ocasio-Cortez or other um, others who uh, tout socialist agenda. So. A rather interesting admission on the part of at least one writer. Well, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration signed a new contract on the 25th of last month to acquire fresh human fetal tissue to transplant into humanized mice so that these mice will have a functioning human immune system, according to information published by the FDA and the General Services Administration. The objective is to acquire tissue for humanized mice. This is according to a June 13th FDA Um, uh, notice for the uh, for the contract. The contractor, the notice said, would provide the human fetal tissue needed to continue the ongoing research being led by FDA. Fresh human tissues are required, said the the notice, for implementation into severely immune compromised mice to create um, chimeric animals that have a human immune system. According to GSA's federal contract database, uh, Advanced uh, Bioscience Resources, a nonprofit organization based in San Francisco Bay, uh, was awarded the $15,900 contract, which will run through the 25th of July 2019. Fetal, t- fetal tissue used in research is obtained from elective abortions, says the Congressional Research Service, as if that were makes it all right. In 2016, Harvard University provided the House Energy and Commerce Committee's select investigative panel of Infant Lives with a background paper explaining that mice with human immune systems are engineered to be to this condition only by means of the use of human fetal material. And that this material can only come from aborted babies, not from miscarriages. Therefore, we are officially and technically cannibalizing our young in order to make ourselves feel better. God help us. 31 minutes after five. We'll be back. Good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a leaked memo circulating among Senate Democrats contains a host of authoritarian proposals that are uh, that would regulate digital platforms. It purportedly is a way to get tough on Russian bots and fake news. It's uh, to save American trust in our institutions, democracy, free press and markets, it suggests. We need unprecedented and undemocratic government intervention into online press and markets, including comprehensive data protection legislation of the sort enacted in the EU. Well, titled Potential Policy Proposals for Regulation of Social Media and Technology Firms, the draft policy paper that was penned by Senator Mark Warner and leaked by an unknown source to Axios, the paper starts out by noting that Russians have long spread disinformation, including when the Soviets tried to spread fake news, denigrating Martin Luther King. Here he fails to mention that the Americans in charge at the time did the same, but uh, now it's different because of technology. It goes on. Today's tools seem almost built for Russian disinformation techniques, Warner opines, and uh, the ones to come, he assures us, will be even worse. Well, here is what he is suggesting, how Warner is suggesting we deal with this new challenge. Um, uh, The paper suggests forcing social media platforms to authenticate and disclose the geographic origins of all user accounts or posts. Now, in some cases, that might seem like a very helpful thing. In other places, it's a bit troubling. Also, the paper suggests forcing social media and tech platforms to authenticate user identities and only allow authentic accounts. Inauthentic accounts not only pose threats to our democratic process, but undermine the integrity of digital markets, he opines, with failure to appropriately address inauthentic account activity punishable as a violation of both SEC disclosure rules and of Section or Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission. Act. Warner's paper suggests forcing companies to somehow label bots or be uh, penalized. No word from uh, Warner on how this is remotely feasible. Now, these would be subject to all sorts of heightened rules and controls, according to the paper, offering Google Maps as an example of the kinds of apps or platforms that might count. Now, the law would not mandate that a dominant provider offer to uh, offer the uh, Uh, to serve uh, this service, rather, for free, Warner goes on to write. Rather, it would be required to offer it on reasonable and non-discriminatory terms provided by the government. In other words, the government would figure out how much this would cost you, this mandate would cost users. Now, other proposals include more disclosure requirements for online political speech, more spending to counter supposed cybersecurity threats, more funding for the uh, Federal Trade Commission, a requirement that companies' uh, algorithms can be audited by the federal government, and this Data share with universities and others, and a requirement of uh, interoperability between dominant platforms. Now, the paper also suggests making it a rule that tech platforms above a certain size must turn over internal data and processes to independent public interest researchers. Independent. Hmm. So they can uh, and they would be appointed by and overseen by the government so they can identify potential public health addiction effects, uh, anti-competitive behavior, radicalization, scams, user propagated misinformation, um, which today is uh, is. Defined as information I disagree with And harassment data that could be used To inform actions by regulators or Congress And of course these include further revisions To Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act Recently amended by Congress To exclude protections for, for prostitution-related content A revision to Section 230 could provide the ability of, For users to demand takedowns of certain sorts of content And hold platforms liable if they don't abide It says while admitting that attempting to distinguish rather between true disinformation and legitimate satire could prove difficult. And that of course is putting it mildly. The proposals in the paper are wide ranging and in some cases, even politically impossible raises almost as many questions as they answer. Matthew Ingram, putting it very mildly at the Columbia journalism review um, points out. So how does this, uh, how does this all happen? In order to protect our democracy, we have to undermine it uh, completely. Well, I won't go on into the details, but this uh, paper is circulating among uh, Senate Democrats uh, with a host of authoritarian proposals that you and I would have to pay for in more ways than just our pocketbook in terms of maintaining the free exchange of ideas, which is already being seriously challenged. Well, Twitter reinstated the account of conservative Candace Owens, uh, the turning point USA communications director, following a backlash for her 12 hour ban from Twitter after she mimicked the racist tweets of The New York Times recent hire Sarah Jong, uh, who swapped words such as white with black, making a point. Jeong has long uh, been well documented. She has quite a history uh, that is anti-white. It's anti-male and anti-police in her tweets. Uh, she I won't even uh, repeat them. You can look them up if you're interested, but um, they're offensive and I won't even repeat them. But She's tweeted some uh, very there's no question about satire. There's no question that they're just racist tweets. Well, despite criticism of her tweets, The New York Times is standing by her. In fact, they've appointed her to serve on the board of their editorial uh, staff, uh, in an attempt to expose the double standard of the New York Times and the the uh, left in general, conservative Candace Owens, she copied Jung's tweets, but swapped out the words "white and "men" for black, Jewish, and women, making the point that if you were to direct these kinds of comments to these members of these groups. Uh, it would be completely uh, found to be unacceptable. Well, in an attempt to expose that double standard of the New York Times and the and the uh, the left in general, uh, that's what she did. Well, Twitter acted swiftly. They banned her for twelve hours. Twitter cited her tweets about Jews as the reason for the ban, according to the uh, the Daily Caller. However, uh, Twitter allowed Owen's account. Um, Rather, uh, later reinstated Owens' account, saying they made an error. Well, Owens then made a video explaining what had happened and said that Twitter and the New York Times were proving her point. The problem with the New York Times essentially sanctioning her, uh, uh, Jiang's behavior, is that they're signaling to the rest of the world that racism actually is OK as long as you pick the right race. If people start to believe, and by the way, Owens is African-American. If people start to believe that the oppressed are allowed to become uh, oppressors, uh, then we're going to be facing a real problem, she went on to say, in explaining uh, her actions. And I think we're facing a real problem in this country. I think that the racism that I see every day towards white people is absurd. And what I always um, uh, do is say, what if I, um, if I was reading this about black people? How would it make me feel? I feel that it's important that I always use my voice and my platform to defend any group that's being treated that way. Well, Owens, uh, Owens, rather, Um, also mentioned that she is called racist names on Twitter often, but uh, none of those accounts get suspended. Uh, She went on to say that she does not call for those accounts to be banned because of her belief in the First Amendment. So I'm glad that Twitter um, locked me out because it really allows us to think about this more and to think about, What in their algorithms makes uh, makes them think that it's uh, that the tweet is wrong when you use certain words, but it's all right when you use others. Well, House Majority Leader Kevin McCartney, who's been vocal about bringing Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey before Congress, um, uh, retweeted Owens tweet after she was reinstated on Twitter, saying that this gets to the core of conservatives concerns. Uh, public officials and or popular accounts can rectify these opaque actions. But how many conservatives out there face similar action uh, without available recourse as today's public square? We need transparency. Uh, so a rather interesting uh, exchange. And by the way, she and her uh, her boyfriend were essentially bullied out of a restaurant this week. And we won't go into details today, um, but uh, the same Owens that I'm referring to. Says uh, Pastor Van Moody, I was one of a group of black faith leaders from inner cities who attended a meeting with President Donald Trump at the White House on Wednesday to talk about the importance of the church in building community, especially in the area of prison reform and workforce development for former prisoners. Unfortunately, he goes on, the political and cultural climate in our country has plummeted to such a point, to such a petty and disturbing place, that I fully expected I might be attacked afterwards. Nevertheless, I accepted the invitation. I believe that the ability to help others who are marginalized disenfranchised and voiceless is an important pursuit and i remain committed to the cause of christ beyond pettiness and politics sadly my fears were realized when i and some of the other leaders these are black pastors were attacked after this meeting for simply attending both in our churches our local communities and from other nationa- uh, nationally our statements and even the opening prayer came under intense scrutiny and our remarks were also taken out of context in order to generate clickbait uh, headlines. Much has been made about my thinking President Trump is caring for all people. Some individuals have misconstrued that statement to conclude that I was giving a blanket endorsement of everything the president have done. This is simply um, was not the intent of my statement. I am on record as disagreeing with the president, including on aspects of his immigration policy. However, I would um, happily hop on a plane to Washington again if I were invited to sit down and talk through other issues that will help the disenfranchised, marginalized and voices, voiceless, rather. He goes on in conclusion, as a Christian, my ultimate example is Jesus, and in the spirit of the popular bracelets from years ago, I think we have to ask the question, what would Jesus do? This answer is simple. He would work to make a difference in the lives of people, regardless of who is in the White House, and I pray that we do likewise. Van Moody is the founding pastor of the Worship Center Christian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. He's the author of a forthcoming book, Desired by God, Discover a Strong, Soul-Satisfying Relationship with God by Understanding Who he is, and how much he loves you. His attempt to live that out was uh, sorely criticized uh, from last week. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Our final segment. Hey, I want to give you a heads up tomorrow on the program. We are going to talk with Tom Cole. He, along with Rich Jones, the pastor of Calvary Chapel Hillsboro, have uh, formulated an organization titled Paid in Full. It's a prison ministry. And uh, Judge Cole is going to to join us to talk about that. Now, both of these men lost their daughters to violent crime. Uh, Both of their um, daughters lost uh, and the perpetrators of their deaths identified and It's really a remarkable story how each of them came to uh, this prison ministry uh, out of grief and out of their Christian conviction and the relationships that have been forged as a consequence with those who have been incarcerated, including those responsible for these violent crimes. We're going to talk with Judge Cole about Paid in Full, this prison ministry um, that is uh, helping to establish a seminary in um, in the prison system here in the state of Oregon. We'll talk more with him about that tomorrow. Well, an extremely rare medieval Bible has been rediscovered and returned to the cathedral it was taken from some 500 years ago. The Bible was written in the late 13th century, according to Canterbury Cathedral in the UK, which is now in possession of the medieval artifact. Well, known as the, let's see, Lyfield Bible after the 16th century Canterbury Cathedral monk that once owned it, the 690-leaf volume It's written on parchment or vellum, which is made from animal skin. Well, the cathedral describes the pages of of the Bible as almost tissue-like in quality. Written in Latin script, the Bible, which was uh, likely produced in Paris, also features intricate decorations on its pages. In other words, in addition to the beauty of the words, uh, the, the volume itself is beautiful. Well, Canterbury Cathedral, which has been a place of worship for 1,400 years, Think about that for those of you who haul your equipment and chairs in and out of a facility week after week in order to uh, hold a worship service in a public place. This cathedral has been a place of worship for 1400 years. It's the Mother Church of the Anglican Communion. Now, the World Heritage Site is also the seat of the Archbishop of Canterbury, the senior clergyman of the Church of England as well. Well, the Bible disappeared from the cathedral's collection of monastic books some 500 years ago during the Reformation when the Church of England split from the authority of the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church. Well, Canterbury Cathedral's monastic community was disbanded during the Reformation, and most of the volumes in its library were either dispersed, destroyed, or taken apart for reuse. Experts are not sure exactly what happened to the Lifefield Bible, but note that the volume was recently purchased for $129,416 from a private seller at a specialist sale Of manuscripts in London. While the UK's National Heritage Memorial Fund contributed $124,240 or pounds for the purchase, and additional funding was received from the Friends of the National Galleries and Friends of Canterbury Cathedral, and a private donation. Well, the Lifefield Bible is one of only about 30 books that have uh, survived from the cathedral's pre-Reformation library, which once housed thousands of volumes. It is the utmost significance to us to have here in our collection a copy of the core Christian text, which was owned by one of the last monks of the medieval monastic community, uh, Cressida Williams, head of the archives and library at the Canterbury Cathedral, in a statement uh, wrote, the Bible bears witness to the upheavals of the Reformation, a time which defined what the the, uh, the cathedral is today, and will have a key role in telling visitors that story. Well, other artifacts are also uh, shedding fresh light on the UK's rich history. For example, the bloodthirsty draft of a letter by King Henry VIII in which he demands a monk's violent death be p- on public display on the north of England or in the north of England. And the 16th century death warrant, the famous king, orders that the abbot of Norton Abbey in the north of England be hung, drawn and quartered, which, if you have any idea of what that is, would not be a pleasant Uh, site, either while it's being done or after, but then decides that the clergyman should just be hanged. So he had mercy. In 1536, uh, in that letter, which is on loan from the UK's National Archives, it's on display at the Norton Priory Museum, Um, in Runcorn. Well, Henry VIII's reign was a turbulent period marked by religious tension as the king severed England, Wales, and Ireland's relationship with the Catholic Church in Rome. The Acts of Supremacy in 1534 recognized the king as the supreme head of the Church of England. Whether or not he should have been or was a believer was not the issue. Two years later, the king oversaw the dissolution of the monasteries, an attempt to destroy the country's Catholic monastic system and seize its assets. Well, last year, archaeologists in London uncovered the remains of uh, Greenwich Palace, the birthplace of Henry VIII and Elizabeth I. Well, the palace once stood on the site now occupied by the old Royal Naval College in Greenwich. Uh, southeast London. Two rooms from the Tudor era palace were found when the uh, ground beneath the old Royal Naval College's painted hall was being prepared for a new visitor center. So just a bit of uh, of uh, Christian history, that spotted history that leads to present day Christendom. Well, as I mentioned, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with uh, retired Judge Tom Cole. Uh, he is uh, one of the founders of Paid in Full and uh, we're along with uh, Rich Jones of Calvary Chapel Hillsboro we're going to talk about this prison ministry and how uh, you can uh, stay informed and come alongside and help them in their efforts on Thursday we'll talk with Jonathan Merritt his book is titled learning to speak from uh, speak to God from scratch why sacred words are vanishing and how we can revive them so there's a controversy over whether or not there are sacred words and whether or not they should be retained even in the 21st century where language has become extremely casual. So we'll talk with uh, Jonathan Merritt about that. And on Friday, um, we will certainly bring you breaking news as it uh, uh, is made known. And uh, we're going to lighten up and take a look at the lighter side of the news as well. So that's our lineup for the remainder of this week. And we're looking forward to it. We'll continue to follow the Manafort trial as it uh, moves forward. And of course, as uh, Michael Cohen, the president's uh, former legal counsel, is facing pressure in a number of areas as well. A lot to follow the election that took place. The uh, in a, a, a couple of strategic areas we'll let you know the results of that on tomorrow's program as well. Want to thank James Blind for producing today's program and for engineering and thank you for making the Georgine Rice show part of your day. Have a great night.